please rate, review, and subscribe to Dare to Explore wherever you listen to podcasts. Dare to Explore is presented by the Space Camp Explorers Club, a new way to support the U.S. Space and Rocket Center and Space Camp. Members of the Space Camp Explorers Club gain exclusive access to content, behind-the-scenes stories, and members-only swag. To learn more, visit SpaceCampExplorersClub.org. Explorers are fundamentally people who are just driven to explore. It's not, it's not because of some uh, thing on the other end of that journey. It's sort of the journey is, is a big part of it. And he wrote that, you know, that I did sometimes wonder, you know, why, why was he motivated to go to the moon? And his, when he explained that in his speeches and in things that he wrote, he said it was really curiosity and knowledge and that that drive to explore the unknown. And so it's, I can't say that it's something I personally identify with so much. I mean, I like to travel, but I don't think I would have wanted to be an astronaut. <laughs> so, um, you know, but I think people that are that are real explorers, they just have this innate curiosity and that's what drives them. It's, it's not what we might find there in terms of, you know, valuable possessions or or minerals or something like that. It's really just the curiosity of exploration. Margaret Von Braun is an environmental engineer specializing in hazardous waste management and risk assessment. Her father was Dr. Warner Von Braun, the first director of the Marshall Space Flight Center, who led the development of the Saturn V rocket that sent the Apollo astronauts to the moon. Margaret was one of the first women to join the University of Idaho College of Engineering faculty and served as their dean of the College of Graduate Studies. She founded an environmental engineering company with her husband that focused on remediation of hazardous waste sites. And in retirement, they started an international nonprofit to assist communities in poor countries reduce environmental exposures and chemical disease. I'm Ryan Faricelli. Join me as I learn what makes this fascinating individual dare to explore. I've got a spaceship that I'm waiting for I'm flying up to the stars I'm gonna dare to explore this time And I'll let you know what I find in Huntsville and I remember my dad saying that all the good things happened started happening when I was born and of course everybody likes to hear that Um, (laughs) I think he probably told my sister and brother the same thing but at that time uh, the conversions from Redstone Arsenal to NASA were you know starting to be talked about and and they had moved to Huntsville Um, I was born in 52 so I think it was a really exciting time for him he saw a lot of promise he saw a lot of potential for growing the program in this dedicated space in northern Alabama. What was going on with Redstone when the German scientists first came over? That was kind of where they all ended up uh, together to begin their research, right? They actually started, the the German scientists were moved to Fort Bliss uh, near El Paso, Texas, and they they were there for several years uh, before the facility at Redstone became available and they came with the army. So that's why the conversion to the army base at Redstone happened. Okay. Uh, 
But they lived in Fort, at Fort Bliss in the Army barracks for quite a while before that. And then moving to Huntsville was really where a lot of the families started, you know, buying and building houses. And at that time, Huntsville was was very agricultural. Um, I still remember our house on McClung Street was surrounded by cotton fields and <laughs> very, very different. It just became a boom town and it's still a boom town. There were kind of two neighborhoods to begin with that I that I identify with. One was on the mountain, so there were the German families that moved onto Montesano, and then there was another group that uh, lived where my family lived um, in the McClung sort of Blossomwood School area. And so, yeah, there were there were kind of little clusters um, in that sense. And then my family ended up moving up to Big Cove, which was a little bit separate from both, kind of between both of those, but but not in those neighborhoods. So I think that's kind of natural. You know, people, a lot of the uh, wives and, and even some of the some of the men on the rocket team didn't speak very, very good English. And so it was kind of, you know, a way to raise your kids with with language barriers. Um, those people overcame pretty quickly. In fact, I think in Fort Bliss, one of the big efforts was, you know, everybody has to speak English and, right. you know, well. <laughs> right. Uh, but yeah, we grew up in in kind of a, a little bit of a German neighborhood, but but went to, um, you know, all of us went to various schools. So we were very much part of the larger community that way. I've talked to uh, Kenny Mitchell and Homer Hickam and a few other folks who who worked with your father, and they all talk about what a surprisingly uh, wonderful man he was. They all say that he was very kind and a very good uh, leader who liked to get down in the trenches and actually talk to the the people turning the screws, not just the the managers of the departments and things. He was, I think, he was a very engaging, big personality. He was he was funny. He he liked to be around people, and I think his management style, of course. As a child, you don't really appreciate that. But but what I've come to realize in my own life is that he very much um, wanted to hear from everybody. And he, he encouraged people to tell stories if things were going badly, which some managers, unfortunately, don't do. You know, there's the old, you know, don't ever tell your boss bad news, uh, which is really not a good idea because if you don't know the bad news, you can't fix it. And so I think he very much... He and his team very much fostered a climate of, you know, if even the smallest thing is going wrong, we need to know it. We need it brought to our attention. And I think there were even some stories that that one of the folks brought something to his attention and, and he was, you know, nervous because he was bringing bad news to the boss <laughs> and apparently pulled out a bottle of champagne to celebrate the fact that they could talk about something that was going wrong and then take the efforts to fix it. So I think that's a a pretty important management style in, in any endeavor really is to encourage that that real openness without fear of, of reprisal or retribution. <laughs> um, he was very funny. He was interested in lots of things. You know, a lot of times there's sort of a stereotype joke about rocket scientists, and he was a rocket scientist, but he was also uh, a salesperson. He was a political person because he really he really ended up in the role of selling the program and, and convincing members of Congress um, with President Kennedy's big support, of course, initially. But but Congress was the one that had to appropriate the money. So he very much had to sell an idea. And one of the ways he did that was he gave hundreds and hundreds of speeches. 
and he gave speeches to rotary clubs, to dental associations, to Boy Scout groups. I mean, there is just a trove of audiences that he spoke to, and that was because it needed to have that grassroots support for Congress to appropriate the money. And I think that's another kind of big lesson for, you know, how do you sell a big idea? How do you convince people that it isn't a big waste of money to go to the moon? Which, of course, there were plenty of people that said that. Um, and it's really by talking to people on a very one-on-one -on -one grassroots level, and then hopefully they're supporting their members of Congress to support this giant budget that they were demanding. Right. That was another big part of his style, really, was was that, you know, just engaging the people at all levels of society to be supportive. One of the things that I was surprised to learn about him was that he was an incredibly accomplished musician. He was a very good musician. He apparently, uh, as, a, as a young person, was a very good cellist. I remember him only playing the piano. I think I remember him playing the cello once, but he wrote music. And at one point, he wanted to become a professional musician. And I think his parents gently told him that maybe he didn't have quite that skill set <laughs> <laughs> to be successful at it, and that maybe he should stick with science. He can still play the cello and the piano on the side. And that's what he chose to do, fortunately. Um, but he, we always had music playing in the house. And I do remember him when I was younger playing the piano a lot. And he did write some music. Um, some of which I think is in the archives at the Space and Rocket Center. That was a big part of his life. He was also very interested in history. He read all the time. He didn't, he didn't read, sit around and read science books. You know, he read about world history and, and stayed up on the news and was very interested in, in lots of other topics. He wrote, he wrote books about what it would be like to travel to the moon. So I, I guess we could think of those as science fiction since they hadn't happened yet. Uh, but he, I think he would have considered them more like science prophecy. This is what we think it's going to be like. Um, and he wrote about going to Mars. He and I actually met Isaac Asimov at the Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena when the first um, images came back from Mars in, I think it was 72, 71 or 72. And we were sitting in that same room that you see in, at JPL still, where they're still celebrating a lot of those big images, but it was a big raster TV screen. And I remember the dots came in sort of like one dot every 10 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> and it took a long time for the first picture of Mars to appear, but it was it was very exciting. And, and like I say, there were a lot of, you know, famous scientists and science fiction writers in the audience. So it's fun. Train like an astronaut and get lost in space at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center. Exclusive family weekend programs are available to try your hand at piloting the shuttle and is based on both the past and the future of space exploration. Pilot the space shuttle and attempt to land safely with the museum shuttle experience. Your team of up to four participants must work together to land the shuttle and bring the crew safely home. Museum admission is required. Find out available times, prices, and more at rocketcenter.com and get ready to blast off. After the Apollo program, um, 
you know, a lot of a lot of the attention started to be on Earth and Earth Earth science satellites because of the images of Earth that we saw from the moon, and then satellite remote sensing became really important. And when he died in '77, that you know there were some some early missions to Mars to to start probing Mars. Um, so it was a big time of transition. The the um, appetite for going back to the moon, of course, waned after Apollo. It's kind of coming back now. Um, People, I think, underestimated a lot of the space benefits that we got in figuring out how to get to the moon, uh, which was where a lot of the benefits came from. It wasn't so much what we found on the moon and what we brought back from the moon, but it was all the all the science and knowledge that had to come together to get there and to get back safely. And so we also had have had a, a good ride on a lot of those benefits, the advances in medicine, advances in communications, advances in materials, you know, the list goes on and on, um, that we've benefited from since since Apollo and, and manned moon missions were ended. When you were growing up, was, was there uh, ever like a take your kids to work day or anything? We, we did uh, we did get to go to what was called the Von Braun Hilton, whose office building would have that name <laughs> at NASA. And my sister and I have pretty funny memories. She's three years older than I am of on the weekends, note the weekends, uh, roller skating up and down the halls. It was a, a great place with smooth surfaces for your roller skates. Um, and I remember very distinctly being in his office with the incredible Bonnie Holmes, who was his, his main assistant. And I remember as a kid watching her work and it was, I think it was the first time the idea of multitasking ever entered my brain. I was probably about seven years old and she was typing on one of those, you know, big clunky typewriters where you had to really push the keys down. And she was eating an apple and I think she was probably reading a book on the side or something <laughs> like that. I remember just looking at her and thinking, wow, how can you do all that stuff at once? <laughs> she was, she was amazing. Um, so I, I do remember his office and but we really only went there, you know, probably on the weekends if he'd forgotten something or needed to do something. It wasn't like we were really there when he was working. We were at school. Right. Did he bring his work home with him? <laughs> the whole team worked pretty hard all the time. And he did always come home with a briefcase. We did always have sit-down dinners together as a family. That was pretty prompt. You know, German parents are pretty prompt. When he was home with us, when he first got home from work and we had dinner and stuff, he was just totally engaged with us. So I think we were sort of a relief mechanism. Um, we'd often go for walks and, you know, just do things to, like you say, comp decompress from the day. But then usually at night when we were doing our homework or going to bed, he had another shift. And that was when he would review whatever reports he had been given and edit them and make comments and ask questions and prepare for the next day. So there, there was always a work time at night after sometime after dinner. Um, that was just part of his routine. On Sundays though, one day a week, he pretty much took the whole day off, especially in the summertime. We had a, a boat in at Gunnersville Lake and that was sort of our family day that was reserved. And we even had to get sort of special deals to bring our friends along because it was supposed to be just the family. Um, as we got older, of course, they had to relent on that. But he did he did reserve that time. And I don't remember, even though I, I can't even imagine how they got all that work done and how busy they must have been as an adult, but I don't remember as a child really ever feeling like he didn't have time for us, which is pretty remarkable. 
Yeah. Um, he he did one thing which I've I've shared with other parents that that I thought was pretty special. He he took my sister and my brother and myself on trips where we were the only kid along. So it was just him and us or or one of us. And those are really great memories. I I went scuba diving with my dad in Mexico when I was about 15 and it was just just him and me and um my parents took me on a trip to Hawaii a few years later where it was just me and the two of them but he he did he did things like that very deliberately so it wasn't always you know pack everybody in the car and then keep try to keep the kids from fighting um it was more you know these are going to be special trips that we make just with one kid or that he made with just one kid and sometimes they were um you know a little bit tag along on a business trip but but usually not they were really you know separated times that that when you think back those are the memories that really stick were you there when apollo 11 uh went to the moon it was the first and only apollo launch that i saw we all went to the cape and july 16th was the liftoff date in 1969 and i remember it extremely vividly i i took my own little picture of it with my little camera um it was just a, a thrilling, exciting day. But I also recall never having a sense that something might not go right. It, there, there was just such an optimism. And that was part of, I think, the success of Apollo. It, they had a lot of contingency plans. They thought a lot about things that could go wrong, of course, all the time. They were very attentive to detail. But there was this general spirit of when this happens and when we do this, not if we can pull it off. And I think that pervaded the team. Um, so I was with him that day, my family was, and then my family, uh, except for dad, all went back to Huntsville and watched the moon landing four days later on black and white TV, like everybody else in the basement. Uh, and he was in Houston for the actual landing. So he was at, at uh, the NASA center in Houston for the landing. Uh, but I just remember it being, okay, we've been talking about this for a long time. Now it's going to happen. And it did. <laughs> Isn't that amazing to think about? But, you know, there wasn't, I mean, I'm sure there was a lot of hand wringing behind the scenes, <laughs> but it was not really projected that way. And I think, I think that's an important lesson when we, when we do big things. Yeah, we have to have contingencies and backup plans and all that stuff, but we also have to really believe in it and believe that it can be successful. If you look at like, I think like two weeks later in August, they were in front of Congress saying, okay, now we need money to go to Mars. Wow. <laughs> so it was like, okay, you can have a party or two, but then remember the real goal here is to get to Mars. The moon, the moon mission was really seen as a, you know, a stopping practice place for going to Mars. And it was literally like a few weeks after the moon landing and, you know, after the astronauts came back, obviously, that they were saying, okay, now the next piece of this is Mars. In the late 60s, we all needed something good to happen. It was a difficult time in, in our country. There was not only the space race with the Russians and wanting to beat them, but, you know, there was a lot of turmoil in the country. There were a lot of challenges. We still have a lot of the same challenges some additional ones but i think it was a time when people wanted something good to happen and and you know it it did so it it was very much a time when people could feel 
united about, you know, if we work together, we can really make things better and we can celebrate those things together. You know, you had said that your dad worked with JFK to get a lot of a lot of these balls rolling. Uh, and then, of course, you know, his assassination happened before before they got to the moon. Well before, you know, you can't really overstate Kennedy's role in setting such a very clear objective. And one of the things, one, one thing that I find amazing in, in looking back at when Kennedy made that statement about going to the moon and returning safely to Earth, America had spent 15 minutes in space. He made that statement. Alan Shepard had gone up 116 miles and came down. We hadn't even orbited Earth. And, and I think it was 20 days later after Shepard's historic flight that Kennedy said, okay, now let's go to the moon. <laughs> I mean, it's audacious. But I think that is the kind of leadership that you have to have to make great things happen. And so my dad and Kennedy, I think, you know, obviously really hit it off. My father was thrilled to have such strong support from the very top. Um, but, but, you know, Kennedy was a visionary that way. And he set a very, very ambitious goal uh, that the team met by five months. You know, they landed in July. They had until the end of the decade. Uh, so I think it was just remarkable that the convergence of, of Kennedy and that rocket team, and it wasn't just my dad, obviously, there was a, a team of people that were just as passionate. Was he concerned about the program's future when, when Kennedy was killed? Oh, I think they were devastated, you know, by that whole event. Um, and I, I just remember sensing that personal devastation when that happened, um, I, but I but I think you know the wheels kept turning, and so I think at some point it also became uh, on the part of the country honoring Kennedy's legacy that we should fulfill this goal. How did your father's work influence you into becoming an engineer yourself? None of us were really steered towards science and engineering at all. My sister and brother both studied history. But I, but you know, in hindsight, I'm sure I was influenced in subtle ways because it was, it was not something that seemed foreign to me. It was something that we talked, you know, we talked about space and technology and things like that, a bit, not not a ton, but you know, it was it was just sort of common in that growing up period in in Huntsville during the rocket years, and so um, I think that was a big influence. And then, really, for me personally, the the environmental movement that I've been involved in as an environmental engineer was in many ways stimulated by the, the Apollo missions to the moons. I think the first Earth Day was actually in April of 70, so it was, it was not long after the first moon landing. And it was very influenced by not only Apollo 11, but the Apollo 8 Earthrise photo, which I believe is still one of the most famous photographs on planet Earth. I, I still can't look at it without just being so moved by it. And what we ended up seeing from space was a lot of pollution. We saw light pollution, we saw mining pollution, we saw landfills, we saw waste dumps. We, we saw things that, that actually from, from satellites, it's like, wow, there, there are not that many things we can see from space, but actually things related to pollution happen to be one of them. And so I, was, I think I was very influenced by that. I think when I, when I first uh, started 
um, moving my career towards environmental engineering, my, my dad was probably not that thrilled with it. He was sort of like, oh, you're just going to be cleaning up other people's messes. And I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> but then I think he also, you know, I started sending him books about like the ocean was endangered. There was a book that came out in the 70s called Must the Seas Die? And my dad loved the ocean and I love the ocean. So that one I think was like, oh yeah, I guess there really are some threats here on planet Earth that we better pay attention to. And then when he started working with Fairchild after he left NASA and looking at at Earth satellites and Earth imagery and stuff, I think I think he started to realize, oh yeah, that's that's kind of an important thing that we're working on now and that space can really can really help us with assessing and, and solving some of those same problems. Right. So you went to school at the Georgia Institute of Technology, uh, where you got your bachelor's mm-hmm. in science, and then you got your master's at the University of Idaho, and then your PhD from Washington State University. Uh, but right. you went you went back to the University of, of Idaho and was uh, a dean of graduate studies there. Yeah, I started out on the faculty and, and ended up um, helping start and direct the environmental science and environmental engineering programs there at the University of Idaho. And then towards the end of my career, for the last 10 years, I was dean of the graduate school. But really the, you know, the fun part about academia is, is teaching and working with students. And that's, that's really, when I look back on my 31 years at the University of Idaho, that, that's the fun stuff. And I'm still fortunately working with quite a few students. And, um, but it was a way to, um, to really develop my own uh, expertise and and share knowledge and you know there's there's no way you learn something better than teaching it to somebody else so um, that's really when I developed my my expertise as as an environmental engineer I had worked for the EPA and for the state of Idaho uh, environmental organization before I worked for the university and and my husband and I also started an environmental engineering business which he ran uh, here in Moscow Idaho and so we we had sort of this tag team between um, my teaching at the university and his consulting firm, or our consulting firm, which dealt also with hazardous waste and environmental cleanup and health assessments. And it worked out nicely because uh, it's a small college town, and so I could kind of recruit good students to come work for us after they graduated. <laughs> so the, the company that the two of you started was called Terragraphics Environmental Engineering. Well, Terragraphics uh, was our company. We founded it in 1984, um, and we focused really on hazardous waste remediation, uh, mostly around communities affected, uh, where health, where human health effects um, were important. And there are a lot of a lot of um, work that we have done that we did was around mining communities. There's a large Superfund site in Idaho called the Bunker Hill site, which was a lead smelter. And there were a lot of children that were lead poisoned there. And that was a, a big part of the beginning of our business. My husband worked on that site for decades. <laughs> it's a big site, big problem. Um, and we we owned and ran the company for about almost 30 years. And then we sold it to a group of our employees who, who are still continuing the company under the name Alta Engineering. But Ian and I were were still pretty passionate about our work, even though I'd retired from the university and we'd sold our company. So we we started a, a nonprofit called Terragraphics International Foundation, or we call it TIFO. And we're now doing in the nonprofit world, a lot of international work on um, health 
assessments, especially in working with communities that are affected by mining pollution, um, which is really pretty much the entire planet, it seems like. Um, and it is a nonprofit. We do quite a bit of work with Doctors Without Borders, who are an emergency health response medical team. So in some places, you know, there's emergency medical response needed, but then we also want to reduce the environmental exposure to pollutants. And that's kind of where we come in. So the nonprofit has really kept us busy for the last 10 years. And it's, it's been um, very interesting, not only working internationally, but we're also working with, with tribal sovereign nations in the U.S. Um, who are impacted by, by mining. And we wanna, we're not against mining. I mean, we all benefit from products of mining, but we need to make sure that mining is, is safe for the workers and for the communities um, that are affected by it. It's kind of like, I think there, there is an analogy to the Apollo program. It, the science is not the hard part. You know, we know how to prevent pollution. It's a matter of convincing people to spend the money to prevent pollution. <laughs> so it's, it's sort of the non-scientific part, the non-engineering part, where you're working with public health officials, you're working with governments. You hope that there's a free press that can help tell the story truthfully. You hope that community leaders and community residents are knowledgeable about problems and can be engaged in finding solutions to them. It takes regulatory structures, it takes laws. Um, and one of the problems with, with environmental health problems globally is that we do not have global environmental regulations. So, you know, an organization can work under certain guidelines in the United States that might appear onerous and and expensive and rigorous, but they can go to another country that has less occupational and environmental standards and no you know, government sort of oversight, and they can operate very differently. And that's something that I hope in my lifetime we see change because we, we really need environmental laws that protect people the same way globally. And that is not the case right now. But I am optimistic about it because early in my career, there were a lot of international environmental problems that we really weren't that aware of. You know, so we could we could buy something and say, gee, I didn't know that child labor was involved in creating this product or that it, you know, screwed up a big part of the environment in that part of the world. Nowadays, we can't say that. We, there's no way you don't know right. uh, in most parts of the world. So I, I'm very optimistic about the fact that, that that knowledge is so much easier to acquire. We know, for example, right now that, that some of the green energy minerals, uh, cobalt in the Democratic Republic of, of Congo, which is a big cobalt resource. We need cobalt for the green energy re revolution. We already know that that's being done without the right environmental occupational safeguards. We already know that. But what we have to do is care enough to make a difference. And we have to mobilize in a way that, that if we're going to use materials from parts of the world that don't have those protections, the consumers need to, to be part of that solution. And I think consumer knowledge is huge. I think consumers can make choices with knowledge. And we also have to be willing to pay for the real costs of things because we all end up paying for it ultimately, somehow, some more immediately than others. But, um, you know, it is a cost to our planet and to our livelihood. I hope I'm an optimist and that is something I inherited from my dad. Um, I like to hope that our climate crisis will unite us. Um, I, I really think 
you know, we, we don't have the luxury of somebody else's problem not being our problem. It, it's just not going to be that way. And so um, for a while we can get away with that, but ultimately we all pay the price. And so I like to think that with the more we understand about the connectedness of choices that we make, um, commitments that we make, you can call them sacrifices, you know, you can call them whatever you want, um, but they are connected and they are real. And we, we have some time, you know, climate experts are giving us, you know, maybe 20 years. Well, remember Kennedy made that statement about going to the moon in seven years after we'd been 15 minutes in space. So I, I think if we, if we have leaders who are committed and who um, can make those commitments real, we can, we can do amazing things. I mean, human beings are incredibly resourceful, but it takes strong commitments and it takes strong leadership. Uh, the, the climate meeting that was held around Earth Day this year in 2021, I think it brought together leaders that represent something like 85% of the global climate emissions. I mean, that's a good start. You know, you get people around the table together making promises and then we gotta hold each other accountable. I, I think that does give us cause for optimism and we don't we don't really have another planet, you know, as we say, we don't, there isn't a planet B for us to go to. Um, so I, I, I do have optimism that the climate crisis will, will unite us in ways that we haven't had to be united before. All new water experiences in the underwater astronaut tank at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center allow you to experience what it's like to swim in a coral reef, float in outer space, and fly with the dragons in the DIVR plus water excursion. Combining a waterproof virtual reality headset with the snorkel system, you can explore new depths right from the comfort of our heated scuba tank. Museum admission is required, and advanced ticket purchase is encouraged to reserve your time for participants ages 7 and up. Visit rocketcenter.com today for more information. My father absolutely would have wanted to be an astronaut to go up. He did a lot of the astronaut training that he could do. He did the weightlessness, he did the underwater stuff. I mean, that was one of the reasons my sister and I learned scuba diving because that was part of the astronaut training. And so we had to be little scuba diver astronauts, which I'm very grateful for. Um, now he did as much of the training as he could to experience it himself. He was a very accomplished pilot um, and he loved to fly airplanes. I mean, he often flew when they had uh, the NASA planes to DC and stuff. He was often the pilot because that was one of his great joys. So he would have loved to have been able to go up, but I think he he knew just based on his age and things that that wasn't going to happen. But yeah, if he had had a if he'd had a choice, he would have been there. Well, I asked about your dad. Did you ever wish you could go into space? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> I actually was the only person in my family who didn't enjoy flying. Um, my dad, my mother, my everybody in my family had a pilot's license except me. And my dad, when we were kids, one of his favorite things to do on the weekend was to rent a plane, put us all in the plane and go somewhere. And you can kind of imagine what I was doing in the back of the plane. I was not happy and I was not well and I didn't like it. So, <laughs> <laughs> I was not the one that uh, 
that wanted to go to outer space at all. I was happy on land and I love being underwater. So that, I, think, I think going underwater, scuba diving is as close to experiencing, you know, another planet or another way of living as, as I will be happy to make. <laughs> Follow your passions. Um, you know, if you're going to make a, a choice about something you want to work on the rest of your life, make sure you're really interested and passionate about it because that is, it becomes a big part of your life. Um, and I can't say that I made decisions that were very linear in nature. In fact, when I look back, they were often very non-linear and sort of spontaneous and sometimes result of events or, or unpredictable things. And so I think being open to the fact that that the things that life throws at you and the circumstances and the problems that we face on the earth might be things that we can't think about yet, you know, that we haven't thought of or we haven't thought of solutions. And so staying nimble, um, I think, you know, like I said, a lot of the problems that we're facing, the scientific technological problems, I'm not saying that we've solved them all or that they're easy, but once we identify them, it's the implementation that is challenging. So we really have to look at these problems from a very interdisciplinary way. We have to work with each other across disciplines. And that's something that unfortunately, having you know spent a lot of my career in, a, in an engineering college, it's something engineers are still working on. You know, they, academia tends to be kind of silo-based. And so breaking down those silos and really working across disciplines, because we have to work with with people along the entire spectrum of economics and politics and social science and making sure that that disadvantaged folks aren't being taken advantage of. Um, you know, pollution and poverty are always together, it seems like. And so environmental justice plays a big piece of that. And just making sure that everybody is at the table that should be at the table and that we're talking to each other is, is just as important as following your own path of your own dedicated profession. I've got a spaceship that I'm waiting for I'm flying up to the stars I'm gonna dare to explore this time 